Well, since it's Father's Day, I just want to point out one of the indelible qualities of a man. The indelible qualities of a man, his confidence. Particularly a man's confidence when he is driving. The ladies laugh. When he is driving, you know, a man really believes he knows the dimensions of his car so well that he can weave through traffic, that he can stop quickly enough, that he can accelerate fast enough. I'm sure everyone else in the car loves it. But we are confident drivers. The best place, though, in the car that you see this is with our navigational abilities, right, ladies? I mean, as a man, I know where I am going, always. I always know where I'm going, and when I don't, I am not lost, I'm just figuring it out. And if men are in the car together, they are never lost, they never utter those words lost, they're figuring it out together, and as we figure it out together, here's the deal, we, our confidence grows even in our directional ability. And the only place, it's Father's Day, the only place in which we lose our confidence is when the ladies in the car say the unpardonable thing, are you lost? Do you need help with direction? I have never been lost, y'all. <laughs> ever been lost. I have been figuring it out, but I am never, ever lost. I always know where I'm going. Ladies, I don't know why it's built into the DNA of husbands and men that we, no matter if we're lost or not, we are never going to admit that we are lost. We're just figuring it out. I don't know why that is. We have a hard time changing directions. When we're going the wrong way, we have a hard time coming back and going the right way. And I would say this, if we treat our spiritual condition, male or female, if we treat our spiritual condition before God, and we go our own way, the same way as men treat driving the wrong way, we're in a heap of trouble. We're in deep trouble and need a search and rescue to redirect us. The truth of the matter is this. Nobody likes to be told that they're going the wrong direction. Nobody likes to admit when they are wrong, when they are lost. In any scenario, when they are off track, and here's the beauty spiritually. There's good news. God is a God who seeks out the lost. He seeks out lost sinners. He draws them back to himself and restores them and helps them turn around and go in the right direction. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, this is exactly what has happened at some point in your life where you were lost, and he came looking for you, and he found you, and he likely found you, not when you were turning back, but when you were heading the other direction, and he stopped you, and you turned back to him, and he put you on his shoulders, his strong shoulders, and he brought you back home. That's the testimony of believers in Christ. We were lost, and he comes after us and finds us. And we turn back to the right direction. Turn with me to the book of Luke this morning. We'll be in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. If you need, if you got a Bible, if you don't have one, it's page 874 on a Bible near you. 
We started last week a summer series in Jesus' parables. And we said that the parables are just truths, real truths to life that Jesus speaks to his audience so that they see truth in a direct, clear way to live according to the way he's called us to live. And oftentimes these parables are very much in your face. The truth of the spirit of the parable, the spiritual point is often in your face as it was last week when we began the series in the parable of the soils. Remember we said that parables were truths that are tossed along the way of life so that we can see them and understand them that have a spiritual point. And so Jesus, Jesus' first parable, first full parable that he tells in his ministry is the parable of the sower or the lost soils. And the question that we asked and answered is this, When the seed of God's word comes to our ears and is tossed our way, what is the soil of our hearts like? Is it receptive to receive the word of God? And today we come to a different parable. We come to the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Two parables out of three in Luke 15. Next week we'll get to the third one, and they all flow in the same direction. The third one is... The famous one, the prodigal son, we'll get to it next week. But today, the lost sheep and the lost coin, Luke 15, 1 through 10. And Jesus, with this parable, is going to ask this question, how does God respond to people who have gone the wrong way, to the lost sheep? And here's the question for us, how do we respond? How do we respond to the lost sheep? sheep. Are we lost sheep in need of a shepherd? Luke 15, 1 through 10. Two parallel parables. How's that? Three central truths. Look at it with me. Listen to God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who's him? Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, my goodness. So he told them a parable. It's a reason. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hear the sarcasm? Lost coin, verse 8. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy, here it is again, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's her first central truth of the parable. The first one is this. Jesus welcomes and seeks out lost sinners. Jesus welcomes and seeks out lost sinners. Do you see in the first verse 
Who's he hanging out with? Who's drawn to Jesus? It's the tax collector and the sinner. The tax collector is, okay, if you have sinners who are morally bankrupt in first century, like Mary Magdalene or the prostitute or the woman at the well, they're on this level and society is up here. And underneath that is the tax collector because he's basically taken a treasonous position. He's stealing money from his own people for the sake of Rome. And they're seen as lower even than the sinners. And so Jesus is hanging out with the outcast of the society. That's who he's hanging out with. And look at what it says. It says that these kinds of people are drawn to Jesus. Why is that? Because the Pharisees observe something. They observe that Jesus, what's the next word? He receives them. It's important to understand what the word receives means here. It does not mean that he accepts them just as they are without any changes as if it's okay to steal from God's people, as if prostitution is okay. It's not that kind of 21st century acceptance of where they are, but here's what it means. It means literally that he gladly welcomes them. You think about lunch, some of you extroverts in here. You think about looking forward to hanging out with, a, with, with your friend. Maybe you're going to lunch with your family. Maybe you can't wait to get to lunch or have somebody over. See, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I can't wait to hang out with them. I can't wait to spend time with the outcast. And when someone can't wait to spend time with you and they enjoy spending time with you, are you not drawn to them? This is why... These outcasts are drawn to Jesus because he's a different kind of leader than the Pharisees and the scribes. And you see it right here. They're grumbling and complaining. He looks forward to spending time with these kinds of people. And these kinds of people come in like Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well. It is not as though Jesus has nothing hard to say to those people, is it? I mean, he's compassionate, and he welcomes them in, but he also says things like, when he protects the woman caught in adultery, do you remember what he says to her? He protects her and cares for her, and then he says what? Go and sin no more. And so there's both grace and truth, and yet people are drawn to him. There's two parables here. You can see, this is pretty easy, you can see the parallels in both of these parables to make some central points. There's a shepherd that has a sheep that does what sheep do. They wander off. That's what sheep do. And what he's saying is, look, in the same way if one sheep, even though it's wandered off over probably over and over and over, are you not going to go get it? If you're a shepherd, your job is to take care of all the sheep, not just 99 who are doing what they're supposed to do, but the one who wanders away over and over and over. So he's just saying, are you not going to go get the sheep? Of course. The answer in the crowd, the answer in front of the Pharisees is, of course. Of course I'm going to go get that lost sheep. And then you see the parable of the woman who has lost a coin. And that one coin is about one day's wage out of ten and so she's got nine days' wages, but she lost one day. Anybody not looking for that kind of money? Of course. And in that day, you, the homes that they had, they didn't usually have any windows, and so she 
lights a lamp, she takes action. She takes action to find what's valuable to her. And it says that she sweeps up her floor. The floor is dirt. I know we don't understand that. Maybe you think of carpet. The floor is dirt, so a little coin can get lost in dirt. And she searches and she searches. She seeks it out. That's the implication. They're seeking out, in both parables, what is lost. I used to go with my dad. Especially in the winter, we had to feed the cows all the time because it's cold. And so we went and fed the cows. It was a good opportunity to spend time with dad doing manly things, feeding cows. But feeding cows wasn't just feeding cows. It was also counting the cows. Because cows wander off like sheep. They're pretty dumb, according to my dad. You've been around a cow. They're dumb. They're dumb animals. And so we would go, and my dad would count them, and he would say, Seth, I need you to count as well. And we had over 100 head of cattle on a number of different places. And, and I would count, and he would count, and he knew the number. He was the farmer. He knew the number of cows that he had on each of those places. And he also had a little notebook that had all the numbers of the ear tags on the notebook. And he had notes on every cow on there. And so when I was looking and we couldn't find one of the calves or cows or the bull, which usually would go to the other pasture, man, I'm praying. Usually I'm praying, Lord, help them all be here because I'm going to miss dinner or I'm going to miss my basketball game because here's what would happen if we lost one. Everything shuts down on a ranch when you lose one cow, even if it's the cow that always runs away. Number 47, I still remember. I ain't kidding. A dang bull. We've got to drop everything. And mom understood. Even if there was chicken fried steak coming, it didn't matter. We waited. We found the lost cow. It was the most important cow in that moment. It wasn't though as though the other ones were less valuable. The truth is that one sometimes got sent to the auction. But the truth of the matter is that became the most important cow in that time. See, God pursues the lost soul who's wandered off because it's valuable to him. Jesus seeks and saves what? The lost. The implication of the text is the lost sheep has intentionally wandered off. And it seems like it's probably tired of wandering because when Jesus catches, when the person catches up to it, what does the person have to do? It's so tired of wandering off, Jesus has to put it on his shoulders to bring it back. Do you see how God, you got to catch this. Do you see how God seeks? That he's not going, well, if you come back, you come back, no big deal. No, he seeks out the lost because he loves the lost. Think about sheep a little bit more. You ever seen that video on social media? It's made its way around where you see this picture of the farmer in this ditch, in this field, and it's a long straight ditch like this. And in the front of the video, you see this farmer with this massive sheep lifting this sheep out of the ditch, 
finally gets the thing out of the ditch, and what you watch, because the, the angle of the camera is the ditch is straight in front of you, and you watch this sheep, this dumb sheep, come over here, and then it makes another turn, then it makes another left turn, and what does it do? It goes, like, immediately. Within 10 seconds, it comes back, and it falls in the same stinking ditch. And you see the farmer put his head down, throw his hands in the air, but you know what he does? He walks down the ditch to pick the sheep up again and again and again and again. The Bible says this. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. Each of us, all of us, to our own way. But he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ, the sacrificial lamb that lays down his life for the sheep. We're all the lost sheep in the parable. Are we not? We've each gone our own way. There are none righteous, no, not One, the Bible says, do you know this truth? Have you believed this truth that Christ lays his life down for you? That you go your own way. And if you know Christ and you've trusted in him, aren't you glad that God didn't bail on you and leave you in the ditch? Aren't you glad that he continues not to bail on you and leave you in the ditches that you still walk into even as a sheep in his pasture? Do you catch the love of God in this passage that he has both for lost and found sheep? You and me, you can't miss it. There's reassurance there. Maybe you've wandered off. He's there. He pursues what he values. But why would Jesus give these two parables? Is he only giving the parable so that the outcast hear it or the disciples hear it? Who's the audience? Who's the primary audience? Look at verse 2 and 3. Who's the primary audience for this parable? Look at it in the text. The primary audience, verse 2, is who? The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. This man receives, welcomes gladly, and eats with them. This parable is primarily directed at the Pharisees and scribes. Look at the next phrase, verse 3. So, so he told them the parable. There's three parables, and they all make a similar point. The two we're in today are making the similar point, which is Jesus welcomes and seeks out the lost. He doesn't grumble and complain like you are, Pharisee. You see that? This is judgment on the Pharisee. He's telling the parables to reveal truth and to conceal truth. That's what we said parables often do. So he told them the parable. And look at verse specifically in verse 7. This is Jesus' sarcasm. You've seen it before. But the Pharisees are right there, just as I tell you, more joy in heaven. Contrast that to grumbling, one who repents, than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Everyone needs repentance. Everyone needs repentance. What he's saying is, here's the, here's the second point you got today. You can't receive Jesus' grace if you don't think you need it. 
If you're spiritually so blind that you just look at everyone else and say, they need it, not me. They're outcasts. I'm insider. This text is teaching us that God is not impressed with self-proclaimed right people, even if there's 99 of them, even if there's nine of them. Do you catch that? It's interesting when you look at the Pharisees' interactions with Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's writing about his own conversion experience, Levi, when he comes to know Christ, and Jesus shows up and he's eating dinner with him. The Pharisees, if you note, they have a big problem with Jesus eating with people, and the reason they do is not because the Old Testament taught that a person couldn't dine with someone, but they had made up extra rules. First century, they had made up Pharisees, Sadducees, they had made up extra rules. I call them extra fences. They made up extra rules and they exacted them on all the people because they were in power. They were the religious leaders. And they said, hey, you don't hang out with sinners. You don't hang out with tax collectors. And Jesus, I love Jesus here. He's kind of revolutionary. He's like, you ain't going to tell me what to do. (laughs) In Matthew 5, they come after him again. And that passage, like this passage for eating with sinners and tax collectors, and Jesus says, I didn't come for those who are well, sarcasm. I came for the sick. It's interesting that Jesus would use the metaphor of shepherd here and sheep directed at religious leaders of the day who are grumbling and complaining about Jesus caring for the flock for the sick, for those who are in moral trouble. And here's why. Look at this passage in Ezekiel. This passage and what Jesus says in the New Testament text would point all these religious leaders to what they know about their role to be a shepherd. New Testament Pharisees understood that they were supposed to be shepherds. Ezekiel 34 Listen to this. This comes about when the nation Israel is in trouble. And God says this to Ezekiel to say to the shepherds, the religious leaders here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Jesus could have said the same to these guys. Thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Look at this. The weak you have not strengthened, i.e., tax collector, sinner. The sick you have not healed. Remember Jesus, what he did and what they did to him because and said about him because he healed the sick? The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And you know what God says at the end of Ezekiel he's going to do? Because the shepherds of Israel didn't do their job. Look at this. This is beautiful. Verse 22, Ezekiel 34. 
I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When you come to this text, one of the textual problems is this. David has already been dead for five years. And God says, I'm going to raise up another good shepherd from the line of David, from the house of David. It's a foretaste of Messiah to come who would reign on the throne of David. It's pointing to Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus who's doing exactly that in the passage we're in today. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Aren't you glad that Jesus is the good shepherd? You have under-shepherds like me and other men who shepherd you. We do that in a, hopefully a godly way, but an incomplete way compared to what Jesus does for you. See, while Jesus seeks out the lost, there's nothing he has to offer. Those who think they are found. These Pharisees, their biggest problem is they're hubris, Right? They see themselves in a different way than they ought. They're self-righteous and they are self-sufficient. And when you are self-righteous and self-sufficient, you make your own rules and then you hold other people, not just to the law of God, and what God says, you hold other people to your rules. And that is a heavy weight that Jesus said, what about? Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm going to take all that weight off of you. It's the beauty of Jesus' leadership. So here's the deal. These guys, these Pharisees, they're blind, right? But they also have what I would call spiritual B.O. You ever been around anybody who has B.O. and they don't know it? Sorry, it's Father's Day. We're going into these themes like driving and deodorant, right? You ever been, like, they have spiritual B.O. They smell, they don't know it, they think they smell great. And everybody around them could tell them if they would listen that they have B.O. And Jesus is doing over and over and over with them is saying, here's the deodorant, and they're not taking it. But there's all kinds of self-righteousness. It's not just the legalist. There's self-righteousness. There's religious self-righteousness in the world where people say, my rules get me to God in my way. And that's unbelief. But there's also some other kinds of self-righteousness too. There's a non-religious kind of self-righteousness that says, my way. It's just the flip side of the same coin. No pun intended. People who don't believe that say, my way. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm self-sufficient. There's also the humanist or the materialist that say, my stuff is good enough. I meet my own needs. See, the good news is only good if you understand how bad the bad news really is, isn't it? And if you ever want to test your inner Pharisee, here we go, all right? If you ever want to test your inner Pharisee, because not only does this time sometimes show up in the life of the unbeliever who has their own sets of rules and in a way in which they have salvation according to their own rules, but it shows up in our own hearts as believers, doesn't it? And you go, I don't know, but that's the problem. It's hard. It's blinding. 
But if you ever want to test the inner Pharisee that's left over even post-salvation, ask yourself a couple of questions. Because there's a Christian version of self-righteousness, is there not? You ever seen it? I'm like, I can see it in others. I don't know if I can see it myself. If you tend to look at others in a sermon like this, <laughs> say it this way, and you're thinking right now of all the people who have spiritual BO and are blind, you're like, okay, enough of the BO stuff. And you, you're, you're thinking about application to that person across the room, and you're not able to look downwind of yourself, there may be some leftover remnants of legalism in your own heart. Perhaps even in the church when you get in a position of power and leadership and you look at someone and you say, well, they're messed up and they messed up or they don't measure up or they're not like me. And you use your power and position to marginalize those people. That's what the Pharisees in some sense are doing here. So here's a bigger question though. Do you see your need of Jesus as much as you see everyone else's need of Jesus? How do you see yourself? How do you see other people? And maybe you say this, well, Pastor, you've talked a lot about Jesus welcoming people who are pretty messed up, even in the first century. And you've talked about kind of the blindness of self-righteous people, but doesn't righteousness matter? Doesn't the pursuit of holiness matter in my life? Isn't there wisdom in being careful about some of these things, and I would answer and say, yes. Grace isn't cheap. The grace that Christ gives you in the gospel has, was not cheap for him. He laid his life down for you. So yes, we should pursue holiness. No, we shouldn't accept people just as they are. We should welcome them. We don't accept them. So here's the last piece. He's speaking to the Pharisees. The last thought you have, or central truth you have in this is this. Heaven rejoices when the lost repent and return home. There is repentance that needs to happen in this text, is there not? For the tax collector, for the sinner, also for the Pharisee, right? Heaven rejoices over the lost who do something, who repent, who return in repentance. The lost sheep are rescued. The lost coin is found. The shepherd and the woman do what when they're found? And they return. What happens? They call people around and do what? They celebrate the return. They rejoice at the return. And the way Jesus interprets it is what? God himself and the angels rejoice and are overjoyed when a tax collector, a sinner, an LGBT person repents and turns to Christ. Do we? Do we? Are we long-suffering in the way Jesus calls us to be long-suffering? Are we more like the tax Are we more like the Pharisee who grumbles just because people are hanging out together? Heaven rejoices over the lost who repent and return home. Repentance is just that. It's walking one way or driving one way 
and being confronted and returning in the right direction. It's turning from your sin and turning to the Lord. That's what repentance, and you see that word here a number of times. There's an emphasis on repentance in this text. And maybe you're sitting here going, well, which is it? Some of you theology guys in here or girls in here, you're saying, which is it? Like, the shepherd, God, goes and seeks after the sheep, right? And he takes them on his strong shoulders and brings them back. But you're it's saying here that there's a need for people to repent from their sins. Which is it? And the answer is yes. Both. It is God who, the Bible says, the kindness of God who leads people to repentance. It starts with God turning on the lights, we said in the book of Ephesians. And yet there is a real sense in which people turn from their sin and turn to God. It's both ends. It just starts with the Lord. One guy said it this way. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But it's not our repentance that leads God to be kind. He starts the work. Happy to talk about that later to you, but I want you to notice something extremely important in this text, the attention in the parable to the affection of God at lost people repenting. He wants to celebrate it. Pharisees are grumbling. He's celebrating it. Heaven rejoices. Let's talk about witness for a minute. What does our witness need to look like? What does evangelism need to look like in our world? For us, in a lost world, what, is evangel- what, what should it look like? I mean, I think there's a sweet spot here that you see in the example of Jesus here and other places, but there's also some ditches we tend to fall into. One of the ditches is, man, I am a truth teller, right? And I'm a contender for the faith, and I got 50 Bible verses that tell me that I need to share truth with people whether I beat them up with it or not. And maybe you see the word repentance here, and you're going, I just think of the free speech area at the college where people who said they weren't sinners who were calling people to repentance. Is that what we're talking about? Now, we got truth tellers. It's good to be a truth teller. But as you can see with the example of Jesus here, it's lazy, y'all. It's lazy to jump out and yell at people or to do this with people online and not be willing to walk with them like Jesus walked with them, to not be willing to gladly welcome them and draw them in and have a real relationship with them. It's lazy evangelism. To just say, well, I told them the truth and they rejected it. Heck with them. And then you turn around and grumble at people who actually are walking with people as Jesus called them to do. Witness is hard. Witness often takes time. Yes, it's the power of the gospel that changes people. But witness in the model of Jesus requires truth and grace and compassion. And some of us are built better for that than others. (laughs) And the challenge in evangelism for some of us is to lean in and be more compassionate and be welcoming where we really don't want to be because we got a lot of yeah buts. Yeah, but I don't want this person in my home. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, but they. Jesus welcomes lost sinners. He's gracious. He walks with people. He's compassionate. The Pharisees are grumbling at who he to hang out with. 
And the other, that's one ditch, right? Tend to be over here. The other ditch is the maybe naturally more merciful, compassionate person who not only tends to welcome people, but just, I'm going to accept you exactly the way you are. That there's never any truth, even seasoned with salt, shared, right? It's just love and compassion. It's good deeds without any gospel truth. The humanist and the atheist do that, y'all. Good deeds without gospel. And maybe you say, well, you know, it's not about the gospel. It's just about caring for people. I want people to know that I really care about them. That's great, but you got to, the gospel is a part of that. It's not separate from that. That's a lie of the evil one to say, well, I'm to, you're not going to care for somebody just because they, you're going to share the gospel with them? No. We're the church. We have a message. We have a mission. And so the compassionate person looks at the truth teller and says, you're doing it wrong. And the truth teller looks at the compassionate person and says, you're doing it wrong. And Jesus, the model of Jesus is both. Right? It is grace and, John 1, truth. You see it over and over and over again in his ministry. And you're like, well, I'm not Jesus. There's a model here, though. Right? Where are you at in those ditches? Everybody falls somewhere. Which we need to work on. There's a sweet spot here of grace and truth that really demonstrates Christ's love and his gospel. See, we're meant to see in this passage the heart of God for the lost and our call to be a witness of grace and truth. We're also meant in this passage to see the spiritual blindness and B.O. of legalism because they totally missed their job, their role as religious leaders, the Pharisees. It was their job to seek and save the lost, and they completely punted on it. Talked about Father's Day today. Talked about men and driving today. How we're never lost when we drive a car, even when we are. But I want to ask you all in this, do you need in your life to turn around? Do you need to turn around? Maybe there's people in your life that have given you warnings, that love you, that call you to turn around. And maybe you're here and you've never never considered Christ and who he is and what he's done for you, that he really has laid his life down for the sheep. And maybe that's the first thing that you need to consider this morning, that he's willing to rescue you and pick you up on his strong shoulders and bring you home. But maybe you've already made that essential decision. Perhaps you know Jesus, but sin is entangling you right now. Maybe people don't know about it, but it is entangling you, and you functionally in areas of your life have turned the other way and said, I'm going to do it my way. And maybe there's people in your life that are graciously calling you back. Do you need to turn? Do you need to turn around? And here's our hesitation. Our hesitation is, God can't forgive me for all the things that I've done. He won't forgive me for that much. Did you hear the parables today? Think about it. One guy said it this way. God is way more willing to forgive us then we are to ask for it. Of course he will. Of course he'll go get the lost sheep. Of course. 
rescue the coin. Of course he will. He's a good shepherd who loves his sheep. Would you come back to him? Your takeaway today is this. There's nobody too lost that God's grace can't find. Nobody too lost that God's grace can't find. Let me pray.